The summer break for the kids is nigh. Should days be scheduled for the kids? Or should we just let them run wild? We'll check in with a clinical psychologist to get her expert opinion. A big report came in today on the grocery industry from the Competition Bureau, who says Canada needs more competition in the grocery sector. Breakfast with the Bombers, former kicker Justin Medlock is the latest inductee into the Winnipeg Blue Bombers Hall of Fame, so we spoke to him. Lab-grown chicken, an American company has been given the green light to start selling it. Would you eat it? And, on that note, what is the strangest, most unique, weirdest thing you've ever had to eat. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Loren McNabb and Greg Mackling, who's on vacation. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And this is the Tuesday, June 27th podcast for The Start. Last week, the U.S. Department of Agriculture gave a company the green light to sell lab-grown chicken meat. Lab-grown chicken meat means genuine meat from the ground up, but using cells, not farms or eggs. Global's Mike Drolet explains. There's nothing pretty about a chicken coop. It's a mass of beaks, feathers, and chicken attitude. And how it gets from here to here, eh, most people would rather not know. He's talking about chicken nuggets, by the way. It's like the, the hot dog of the chicken product. Anyway, let's carry on with Mike's story. I feel like chicken tonight, like chicken tonight. They just want their chicken tonight. But would they want this nugget, which was grown in a lab, and even chefs have a hard time distinguishing from the real thing? Wow, great flavor. The texture's really nice. So yeah, basic food biology isn't being written on barbecues, it's in labs, and it comes with a healthy side of questions. I mean, like, is, is it genetically not chicken? What's the deal? The deal is, yes, genetically, it's chicken, minus the beaks and feathers. They start with taking cells from a living animal, then they're placed in a bath of nutrients inside a bioreactor where they multiply and grow. And then, in as little as two weeks, it comes out looking like minced meat. All that's left is to shape it so it looks like the real thing. I like the real thing, the real McCoy. So I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be interested in. It wasn't so long ago plant-based burgers were raising eyebrows. Now, they're everywhere. Cultivated meat allows people to eat meat without slaughtering animals, removing cruelty concerns. Meat created in a lab still requires energy, but less so than traditional animal agriculture methods which involve large chunks of land and significant water use. So there's the opportunity to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, a positive for the planet. Granted, there's a learning curve here. Because the idea of 3D printed meat still might be a hard sell for some. Would I buy that? No. No? Well, let's give the industry time to develop into whatever shape it wants, apparently. Mike Drolet, Global News Toronto. What do you think, Loren? Would you eat it? I honestly didn't even know this is th- was a thing. And as we were talking about this, you had sent me this sort of alert to this story last night. I thought, I don't even know what you're talking about. And so he brought up plant-based burgers. Well, those are still come, coming from a plant that's naturally grown in the earth and then turned into a burger-like option. This lab-grown meat is a whole other 
thing to me. I was reading a story on CNN this morning and someone there had tasted it and said it was it was very savory, tasted good. So it tastes the same, according to the person who tried it there. Full and savory was the exact quote. Tastes like traditional meat. The cost is going to be something I think from what I can tell so far is that, you know, a lab grown burger is going to cost more than um, I'm talking about, say, if you do a beef burger, it's going to cost more than your traditional burger. So the cost might change things. I don't know. I think there there needs to be I just need to know more because like all things like is there sort of some sort of back end problem where down the line eating something in the lab could have potential health ramifications? I don't know. If I didn't know, I guess I wouldn't care. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe we'll make this the question of the day at cjob.com for Mr. Furnace. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furnace at 204-832-6243. We have already put this question up on our Instagram if you want to weigh in. Would you eat lab-grown chicken meat? Sure, why not? No way, or I don't eat meat. <clears throat> and I guess even as I think about that now, if you are a vegetarian or a vegan for ethical reasons, and then someone says this lab came from, or this meat came from a lab, it didn't come from a live animal, I wonder if that might have some vegetarians rethinking. I don't know. I'm just sort of thinking about that off the top of my head. But for me personally, sure, I I would put myself in the sure why not category because I can't imagine this is something that would ever uh, replace traditional food production. But if it scientifically is meat and tastes good, I, I I don't really have a problem with it. I, I, even those plant-based burgers, there are some of those things. I, uh, I remember trying the, the, the veggie chicken sandwich a few years ago that KFC introduced. And I thought for sure they had made a mistake. I actually took it back. I said, are you positive? This is the veggie burger because it tastes exactly like your chicken burger. That's yeah. That I'm trying to figure out if I have a difference. Like if my mind feels differently about that though, because it's still coming from a plant source, which feels different than coming from a lab and I don't know why that would be for me and I and I guess I guess like all things it would just be a matter of does it just make sense you know like why the food choices you make are for a variety of reasons it's for taste it might be for cost it might be for ethical reasons and I think Mike's point right off the top of that story Global's Mike Drolet is the point a lot of people either don't know where their food comes from anyway or would rather not know and think about it so if you didn't know would it make a difference to you anyway? Yeah. Like most people, re- I mean, there's so many people, and particularly kids, you know, until they get to the point where like, wait a minute, is this an actual pig, you know, and you're having those chats or where did, how did this work? And then when you see some production facilities, you think, huh, I did not know that's how it all came together. So the more you know or the less you know might be, <laughs> might be the way you're looking at this. And I also wonder too, if this becomes a thing and becomes a little bit of a bigger thing, is this something that can perhaps maybe alleviate some pressure that our food producers might feel to, to just, you know, to keep churning out uh, quantity, like a, the, the, the quantity that they have to, to pump out. Uh, if, they, if we can get the lab grown meat sort of alleviating that, maybe that's a good thing, but I don't know. It's, this is the first I'd heard of it yesterday watching global national Mike Drolet's on there looking at chicken nuggets and uh, he's got his head inside a barbecue. And I'm thinking, Okay, well, we are entering a brave new world here. But let us know what you think at 204-780-6868. Would you eat lab-grown chicken meat? Again, sure, why not? No way. I don't eat meat. You can cast your vote on our Instagram. I'll put that up on Twitter as well. And let us know on our text line. It's McGarry and McNabb. Mackling's off this week. Just had a chat about... 
Lab-grown chicken meat. U.S. Department of Agriculture has given a company a green light to sell said lab-grown chicken meat. Would you eat it? We're asking you on our social media, on Instagram and Twitter, and you can re- get the link to that story if you want to see Mike Jolet's story. But that's going to trigger our next conversation. What is the weirdest thing you've ever had to eat? Because if you were to eat that, it might look like chicken, might taste like chicken, but the idea that it came out of a lab, that might be kind of weird to you. So 204-780-6868, what's the weirdest thing you've ever had to eat for a chance to win tickets for the Gimli Film Festival? Skylar Peters, you want to kick this off? Yeah, I uh, once had Rattlesnake uh, oh. at a restaurant in Phoenix, Arizona. I just looked it up just to confirm. It's called Rustler's Roost. Okay. And Google says Rustler's Roost is a Western-themed restaurant on a golf resort bringing together steaks, sweeping views, and country bands. And, uh, yeah, it's like I remember it just being like right at the top of their menu. You know how they kind of highlight whatever, you know, a lot of restaurants do that, highlight their uh, special dish or whatever it is. And um, you could order the full thing, and I don't remember how long it was. I was pretty young. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think if you ordered the full thing, it came with a shirt saying that you like ate the snake or something like that. <laughs> but you could also just sample like little bites. Um, so I think uh, me, my mom, my dad, grandma, and grandpa, probably all five of us got like a bite each and, and tried it out. And I just remember it, it wasn't much to it. Like it wasn't, there wasn't any particular flavor, kind of chickeny, I guess, like, and not super, uh, not super like light. It was quite dense. I do remember that more than, than any particular Chewy? flavor. Yeah, like it, it was fairly chewy. It was like a like a dense piece of fish almost that doesn't have a lot of flavor to it. So it is not the most not, exceptional thing. It's not appetizing to look at. Like the way no. that they prepare it, it looks like a giant centipede. I assume it was yeah. fried. I, I It's so long ago now, I can't remember. I actually got to look. Yeah, I got to look up a picture of the dish in a sec. But uh, yeah, it was just to say I did it. Sure. Yeah. Would I order it again? Probably not. <laughs> wasn't wasn't the most exquisite dinner I've ever had. <laughs> Wrestler's Roost. Okay, never thought, didn't know that was the thing, eating rattlesnake. Cam, what about you? I had an alligator when I was in Florida when I was a kid. I I haven't had it since. Um, And I just remember, like, I mean, this is, like, so lame to say, but I remember it tasted like chicken. Um, But when I was in, I was in Puerto Rico, I had conch, which is, like, a snotty sea snail. And, like, you know, everybody knows, like, a conch, conch shell. And, like, I guess if you grew up with it and it's just been something that's around you all the time, you you might develop a taste for it. Maybe if if you were, uh, maybe somebody from Puerto Rico would come to Canada and think some of the things that we eat is weird. Uh, but like that's that's just something you just don't ever need to eat. Like it has it has no it has no <laughs> real flavor. It's it's kind of gross. It's got a weird texture to it. Uh, so yeah, conch is. Uh, but listen, I, I'll try anything. Like I'll eat anything. I'll try anything once. Yeah. Is yeah. there is it do you is there a line? Like let's say it was a no, really, <clears throat> like a live bug. Uh because that's a, those are delicacies in some yeah, parts of the world. Yeah, I, I probably would do it. Um, but like there I I like I won't try tripe again because I've had tripe and it's flavorless and it has no taste. I've had chicken feet again, flavorless, no taste. I have no reason to ever eat that again. I don't like it. I saw yeah. a video of a guy um, smoking a gator at the College World Series last night. It was LSU they were playing. So I feel like that's a Louisiana thing, but uh, just like on a spit oh, yeah. type right, thing, like no, just a right gator trigger. Like it was like right. just coiled up in that thing. Oh, yeah, I, I actually saw like a. I don't know if I'd have that. Uh, a YouTube video. I would eat that. Oh yeah, I'd eat that. Like, um, <laughs> but like if yeah, it's like I saw a YouTube video about that, and it's like uh, you know when you're when you're starving in the bayou, gator comes by. Mm-hmm. 
It's yeah. looking pretty tasty. <laughs> Ran out of gumbo. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've got rattlesnakes. We've got conch. Loren McNabb, what about you? I've had both the crocodile tail and ostrich in, I think it was South Africa. And both also tasted like chicken, although an ostrich is a giant chick or something. It's a bird type thing. But the thing that was, I was looking it up this morning. I'm not going to get this right, but it's called Ishwa and it's a flying termite. And in the rain season in Zimbabwe, they like come out in droves when it's super, super rainy for days. And they're just flying around and they'll capture them. And I think it's mating season for them. And when they mate, I think their wings fall off or something like that. But they pull the wings off and then just throw them on like a little fire, like a grill, and add some salt. And everybody's eating flying termites. And honestly, it tastes like a sunflower seed. Yeah? Yeah. It's like, and I know now people eat crickets and things like that here and they mix them up for protein. But in other parts of the world, bugs have been eating eaten for probably centuries for for all sorts of reasons, but the protein is really good, but the taste wasn't bad. It's just the more what goes into it. Like lots of things for me, knowing about how it's swarming around you and then the rings either wings either fall off or are ripped off and then it's thrown on a fire. Like that's, if I didn't know all that, it would have been easier to digest, but it didn't taste bad. It was good. Yeah. You have to think like if, if, if you're like, if you're like a farmer or something like that, I mean, it's even in the Bible, you know, like, uh, you know, locusts, they're, they're considered kosher because if they come in and wipe out your fields, you got to eat something. Yeah. 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 The latest uh, season of Our Planet 2, by the way, on Netflix, did a thing on locusts, yeah. and it was one of the craziest things I've ever seen. The march of the locusts and then the swarm of the locusts, like th- five billion of them or something, yeah. all in one shot. They had to go. They had to, lo- like giant locust swarms you know, running over the prairies. They had to be wiped out. Like That's something that had to go. Ishwa, by the way, Loren, is correct. I-S- H Ishwa W A. There you yeah. go. I'm feeling bad for Forche. He told me a half hour ago his stomach's been bugging him. And now so we're this talking is a great about- conversation. Oh boy. <laughs> okay. Well, the, the weirdest thing, uh, actually, Loren just said it. Probably the weirdest thing because I haven't had that many weird foods, but uh, the crickets. And I know Brett, you've had them before, and I bought them at uh, the Forks, and yep. uh, they were salt and vinegar, so the taste wasn't bad. It, the worst part for me was having the little chunks. There'd be like. I don't know, it's almost like I could feel like an antenna that was like stuck in between my teeth, which <laughs> did not make it good. Or yeah. uh, I do remember in junior high, I wasn't eating, but uh, during our dissection class, we had pig lungs and I got to blow those up. So uh, that was fun. What do you mean blow them up? Got to blow them up. Like a balloon or yeah. like you, what did, how did you blow them up? You put your mouth to it? Yeah, you put your mouth to it. I was sick that day. I was sick that day. So, so yeah, I just got to, infl- got to blow into I don't know, like the the main part, the the, the airway, and it, the lungs just expanded. And it was like, oh, look at that, that's cool. Did they explode? Like, no. Okay. Were you trying to make a bagpipe? Isn't that like some sort of <laughs> organ? Wasn't that the pig stomach? I think that so. Was yeah. Made into a bagpipe yeah. or something? Something like that. I'd, I'd love to try haggis. No, you were in Scotland. I, I'd eat that. I couldn't no do problem. that. I bet it's good. What is it again? Is haggis, it's, is that blood like sausage? Heart, or is it? No, it's like, it's no, it's like the stomach. It's like stuffed oh, it's stomach. stomach with like grains and stuff. But uh, why would you want to try haggis after just saying so vehemently that you never want to have tripe again? Isn't that the... I said I'd try it. I'd try anything. Okay. But I would, I, I, I'd eat it. I'd eat it. 204-780-6868. I just looked that up. Sorry. <laughs> if you're eating with Brett, just bring another shirt. <laughs> yeah. Hey! Skyler Peters for the callback to yesterday when I dumped my coffee all over, or dumped Cam's coffee all over him. Hopefully Peters isn't walking through the hall with some coffee because now he's got a target on his back. (laughs) 
Right now, though, the countdown is on for students and teachers right across this province. Yes, school is almost out for summer for most elementary kids, and some high schoolers might have finished a few days ago. So obviously, that means no more homework, no more alarm clock, no more deadlines, right? Uh, Dr. Joanne Unger is a clinical psychologist and assistant professor in the Department of Clinical Health Psychology at the University of Manitoba and works often with children and adolescents. And we say good morning to Dr. Unger. Good morning. Let's talk downtime first, you know, this opportunity for kids to have that break. Is that truly important for them to have the the week, the weeks, the months off? Well, it's certainly important for us to have some some time off. Rest is important. Rest and fun and relaxation is important no matter what age we are. So to be able to have that break and that reset, uh, however long that is, um, you know, at least some, some time to be able to do that is super important for our mental health. Now, in terms of routine, like, should we just throw the routine, the wake-up times, the 10 months of practices, you know, basketball, guitar, whatever, should we just throw it all out the window? Well, you certainly can throw it out the window for a little while. I know a lot of people really appreciate having that flexibility again, and also for kids, a bit of that sense of control over their day-to-day lives can be you know, really refreshing. And we also know having that sense of choice is helpful for mental health. However, I wouldn't say throwing it all out the window for two months is probably going to be a good idea for most people's mental health. We know that some structure and routine, and this doesn't have to be like on the minute, like we have at school with the bells ringing, and it doesn't have to be you know, the things that they were doing at school, but having some sense of routine and some, some sense of what's going to come next, what are we doing today can actually be really helpful for mental health. I know sometimes we see with kids, they can, you know, they, they really want to have all of that free time and be able to choose everything that they're doing. But sometimes, you know, those some things that are particularly rewarding that aren't necessarily good for them to be doing for hours on end, like video games, you know, all day long we can find that that actually over time can be really dysregulating for kids. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but, you know, getting too much sleep or being, you know, doing too much of unregulated time, you can find that maybe arguments might increase, you know, if they have siblings or with parents and they seem just a little bit off, that could be that they're not having enough schedule or enough routine in their life. So you've outlined why it might not be good to, to throw away the full routine, Dr. Unger. But what's the benefit when, you, when I add a little bit of structure? Like when you talk about being good for your mental health, is it more just about the, the kids need to have a sense, like a general idea of how the day or week might go? It's a couple of things. But yes, that's one of the things. So if there's a bit of I know what's coming next. Um, we know, you know, if you think about back to in the days of, of the strict restrictions of pen, of the pandemic and not knowing what was going to happen. That's really hard on the stress system um, in terms of our ability to prepare and our ability to kind of know what's happening because then we're kind of having to try to anticipate or we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. So it's helpful to have some sense of what's going to happen. Um, the other piece is around being able to have things in our day that we know are good for mental health. So if we let kids choose you know, if we let them choose candy and ice cream and chocolate, they would, right? If, if uh, they were able to eat all the things that, that really are rewarding in that moment, they might do that. Same with activities of the day. So, if you know, giving them a bit of variety in terms of making sure they're outside, they're getting some physical activity, 
They are socializing with other people. They're doing some things that are really, really fun, but they're also doing some things that give them still a sense of accomplishment, even over summer. We know that uh, one of the, the best recommendations for reducing depression is having both a sense of mastery in our day as well as a sense of pleasure and physical activity and social. So having a balance of some of those things in our day isn't something that kids maybe can regulate for themselves depending on their age. Um, but so then as parents or caregivers, we can help them kind of find a way to get some of those things in their day-to-day life even when they're not in school. Clinical psychologist Dr. Joanne Unger, you mentioned video games, playing video games all day. And when I was a kid, teenager, I was one of those kids, always on my Nintendo. I remember renting a copy of a game called Blaster Master from Addie's Video on Regent and played it. It was like 35 degrees outside. I was playing it all day in the air conditioning. But my mom, whether it was that game or any other game, inevitably she'd throw me outside. So are you telling me that she was right? (laughs) Sorry to tell you. I think you might have even known that she was right. Even at the time, you might have known she was right. I think that's true. Before we let you go, Dr. Unger, I wanted to ask for parents and guardians and grandparents. I mean, there's a break coming now, too. We just had our last sort of activity last night in terms of the scheduled game and practice for the kids' sports. And now I kind of look ahead and we have some weeks off, too, as parents. And so that that has to be important, too, to sort of manage your own time as mom and dad's. Absolutely. So, um, again, having some downtime where you don't have to, you know, a day or two where you're doing nothing is great. Um, But then to make sure that we have some time that, you know, we're we're being... Uh, We're making conscious choices about how we're doing that time, doing what we know is good for us, things that we love, things that help us feel good when we're done. That's often a test, too, that I I give to even the teenagers I work with, but also, also the adults is, you know, when you're done your day, are you feeling better? Are you feeling, you know, maybe tired, but that you got energy and that your mood is feeling good. That's a sign maybe that, that that's what you, what you needed for that day. So, so letting that be a bit of a barometer, right, for ourselves and for our kids is, is the rest and relaxation leading to us feeling better and feeling stronger when we're done. And that, that can help us as well. Dr. Joanne Unger, clinical psychologist and assistant professor in the Department of Clinical Health Psychology at the University of Manitoba. Thank you very much for the time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. McGarry McNabb, Mackling's off this week. We're asking you about the weird, unique things you have tried to eat, inspired by the discussion we had last half hour about how a company in the U.S. has been given the go for selling lab-grown chicken meat. What does Arlene suggest, Loren? Oh, no, you have to read Arlene's. You're it. (laughs) Okay. It's a must-try during the Gimli Icelandic Festival, i.e. Islandingadagarin. And I have no idea how to pronounce this, but I'm going to guess Harofiskur. It's a fish, usually cod, hung outside until it's dried by bacteria, then pounded with a mallet. It's best with butter and salt and lots of cold beer. I'm in. That sounds good, and I'm sorry I put you on the hook for that one. Oh, it's okay. Red said moose nose soup. And I said, what do you mean? Like, just the nose? And Reg says it's chopped into small pieces like barley, then served, had it at the Thompson Winter Carnival. Reg added it tastes like beef barley. Wow. I have to look this up because I'm not sure, you know, what the authenticity is. It's a traditional soup, you know, I know in some parts of uh, Manitoba. And I'm just trying to see um, what else goes into it. Well, and I guess 
they, when you think about it, they, they, it probably was born out of the idea of, look, we don't want to waste Absolutely. anything. We want to make sure we get everything we can out of this animal that's feeding our family. So, yeah, eventually you're going you're gonna to find something that doesn't work <laughs> and no, something I mean, that does. That's like all things. We were talking about bugs earlier, right? Like, you're, you know, if you're hungry or you're looking for protein or, or in a bad season, you might not have things growing. You got to find other things to eat. So Reg said moose no soup. He quite liked it. And Rob, I think you'll like Rob's, Brett. He says, when I was in grade four, me and this other new kid were like jockeying for status. So we challenged each other to eat anything. We had to eat whatever weird things other kids suggested, like erasers, pencil (laughs) shavings, paper pen caps. LOL, says Rob. (laughs) Uh, That must have been... uh a little hard on the tummy <laughs> after that. And we're going to, somebody else is suggesting, Dan suggesting that uh, I once tried raw spiny sea urchin. Very tasty. So I need to look into that because <laughs> see, as far as I remember, a sea urchin is just a big ball of spikes. So how you get into that, I guess you just cut her in half. I don't know. It's time for Breakfast with the Bombers, brought to you by cooperators investing in your future together. Exciting news yesterday from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers concerning one of the greatest of all time, kicker Justin Medlock, one of the most accurate kickers in CFL history, is the latest inductee to the club's Hall of Fame. Here's what Mike O'Shea had to say about it on last night's Coaches Show. I really think, you know, the kickers I was around from playing and, and then coaching, he was just... One of those guys that I think had a hand in changing, changing the game in terms of, you know, the expectation of how good it should be, mm-hmm. which is, I think that's really cool. Medlock was the lone 2023 selection by the Winnipeg Football Club's Hall of Fame committee and will be honored at the Blue Bombers Gala in support of amateur football on October 18th at the RBC Convention Centre, Wednesday, the October 18th, and also will be honored at the final home game of the season on Saturday, October 21st. When we play Edmonton, Justin Medlock joins us now. Good morning, Justin. Congratulations. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So you wrapped up your career with the Bombers in 2019. What are you up to now? Where are you? Uh, I'm. Uh, yeah, that was a little while ago. I, uh, I'm back here in California. I used to live in uh, Florida, and you know we we uh, moved the whole family out to California. I'm from the Bay Area in San Francisco, so uh, a job took me here, and now I'm. Uh, back here around family which is great and um still living uh the good life hang on a second you're joining us from california right now yeah california oh my gosh so we got you up early (laughs) uh no i I wake up i woke up at five i was gonna work out here in in just a short bit so um yeah you you're fine i wake up at five i woke up at 450 yesterday so okay well thank you still thank you we appreciate that we had no idea that you're out uh west in california um but i wanted to play another clip here because coach o'shea also spoke last night about how meticulous and driven you were and gave this example you got a post-practice basically session where weston dressler who's just run all these routes in practice or whatever is now going to hold for justin and justin's gonna from a very short distance throw and roll bad snaps to him over a hundred of them (laughs) so weston's fingers are basically bleeding picking up these footballs and pinning them and you know he's like okay only 10 more only 10 more only 10 more just in case just in case uh rempel had one snap that might might have been off, which there never really was. But 
they were prepared if it happened. All right. So first off, do you remember that? Oh yeah, those are those are daily sessions with everybody who who held for me, which is you know that's why you know working with me is you know a tough tough job, right? Because I'm pretty uh, picky and um, I demand a lot. But you know, I uh, you know I think with being a holder, it's a very thankless job that you have to really kind of um, help the team out and you know do little things right. And so uh, it wasn't easy working with me, but you know I appreciated all my my holders and. Um, yeah, it was great to, to work with all of them. And they're, they're, I mean, I, I, you know, I loved them all, so it was always great. Where does that come from, Justin? Have, you know, is that sort of a from birth, the, the attitude you have, that drive to be meticulous and just to go over and over and over again? Or is that something you realized along the way that you had to do in order to be great? Uh, a little bit of both, actually. I think it's a little bit of both. I think that, you know, you have to do these little things to get um, to be ready because you know those situations are going to happen. You have to get these people prepared. Right. Like they have to be prepared under, you know, a game winning, you know, kick or, you know, a situation where they get a bad snap. So they, you know, they do need to be ready, but you know, I, that's something that I've always kind of worked hard. That's one thing that, yeah, I think I was talking to one client one time and we were talking about football and he was like, Oh, well, how'd it go with you? And I was like, you know, I've always started out when I started this, um, you know, journey that, you know, for football, I always just worked really hard Right. And maybe not the smartest, but sometimes I just always worked really hard. So, um, yeah, it's just a little bit of both, I guess. Well, an excellence certainly is what you achieved. 195 of 228 field goal attempts as a Blue Bomber, 85.5 percentage, the highest in Blue Bombers history. But when you miss, though, and when you miss a, a kick, is that a, a lonely moment on the field for you? Uh, you know, that's part of the process, right? So, um, you know, some kicks are worse than others. So, yeah, I, I think overall I had a, a, a good career there, you know, minus maybe one month there in 2017 where I couldn't make a kick or something and I was, you know, in a little slump and that was a pretty tough part. But, uh, you know, you bounce out of that and you just trust the process and move on to the next one because yeah, every kick's different. But, um, you know, the mental aspect of, of kicking is so huge and I think the last part of my career – uh, especially the time I was there in Winnipeg, I was so strong because, you know, I had a lot of, uh, you know, challenging situations with different holders and um, different snappers and, um, you know, different game-winning kicks and, you know, kicking in colder weather. And, you know, you know I, I think that there was, a, there was a lot more challenges there. And so mentally, I think I was just a lot stronger in, um, in Winnipeg. I can I, I, walk me through the holder. Like, is there a specific way you very much like the ball to come in and be set down? And that would have that part would have to be practiced over and over again, because I get having to do it quickly, but doing it right is different. And could you tell right away if, if the ball's not been being held the way you think you'd get that, get it off right off your foot, Justin? Yeah, I knew right away. Um, but, but, you know, the main thing is, is that, you know, when you're down here in the States, you know, a lot of these holders are, you know, they're punters. So you work with them all year mm-hmm. and, so they're really, you know, you can roll from a punter to a punter, and they, they all kind of know how to hold, right? Whereas when you go up to Canada, you have to work with a quarterback or a wide receiver, right? And they're not really used to, so you're basically starting from zero. So you have to, like, really teach them how to do it every year, right? And so that's a little bit of the challenge there is that, like, you're, you're teaching somebody how to crawl and then walk and then run and then be able to do this, like, performing at a high level, right? So that's, that was always, like, the harder challenge is, like, immediately as soon as I got to camp, to camp, I had to like figure out who's going to hold. 
all right, let's go. We're going to start working on it. And I had to like, I had to go through some growing, like growing pains in the beginning of the year, uh, just to like get through that and just kind of make some kicks instead of like making sure that they're perfect. So that was always more of the challenge. And plus two, for me, I was more of like a, how you caught the ball. So if you kind of caught the ball wrong, then it just messed me up because my eyes kind of went to the holder really quick. And so if I saw you like catch the ball wrong, it was like, it just really threw me off. So I had to like teach guys how to hold the ball or catch the ball. We're speaking with Justin Medlock, who was in Bombers announced yesterday going into the Winnipeg Blue Bombers Hall of Fame and Wade Miller, president and CEO of the football club, Justin. He often speaks to us about football being the ultimate team game. And yet, as we saw in last year's great cop, whether it's team game or not, everything can end up kind of hanging on the kicker. So like, how do you, how do you deal with that pressure? Um, yeah, you want those kicks. I think if you're, you know, if you're a kicker, you want those kicks. Right. So, um, I want the game to come down to me. Then I feel really confident that we're going to win. Right. So, um, you know, that was a tough one to watch last year and, yeah, it comes down to, you know, a kick and comes down to, you know, blocking for the field goal, right, too. So, you know, the kicker's going to get the blame, but, yeah, it's a team aspect, right? We all have to do our job. And, um, yeah, that's why you get – that's why you're hard on some of the other guys, too, right, to so make sure that they're doing the little things right. And, they, you know, they kind of think, oh, well, here comes, you know, crazy med. But at the same time, like, if we're doing all the right things, then I'm able to execute and do my job to the best of uh, – my ability and execute under pressure. Right. So, um, but they, you know, that was a tough one to watch last year, but you know, they'll bounce back to win this year. So you're coming for the ceremony October here in Winnipeg. Did you ask the bombers if they could have put you in for a summer celebration as opposed <laughs> to a fall one, Justin? <laughs> I, I know. Right. I thought to myself, Oh man, October. Wow. I haven't been in that kind of weather in a while. I think over here, I'm like 50 degrees and I'm like, can we can we get to spring? Is the summer? What's going on here? So uh, it should be a should be a chilly one. Yeah, well, you never know. October is kind of hit and miss. It can be warm, it can be cold. So hopefully, it'll be on the warmer end. And before we let you go, Justin, just for kids looking to get into football, do you maybe have any introductory tips on uh, on how to to be a good kicker? Uh, play soccer. <laughs> I think play soccer. I think that's uh, you know any. figure out the athletic um, side of them and then into a kicker. That's like my, my thing is if my son turns into a kicker, I'm like, oh, gosh, he's going to be a kicker? Like, I don't want him to be that. I don't want him to be the kicker. So, uh, because it's that, too much pressure on you, right? To watch that from the stands yeah. would be hard. But maybe it'll be a fallback, you know. We'll get to the end and be like, all right, you know what? This golf and this, you know, these basketball, it's not working out. We got to kick, all right? We got to get a scholarship somehow. So let's kick. Come on, get your cleats. Let's go. <laughs> Justin Medlock joining us live for Breakfast with the Bombers. Once again, congratulations on being inducted into the Winnipeg Blue Bombers Hall of Fame. Yeah, thank you. And uh, Justin will be honored at the Blue Bombers Gala in support of amateur football. Again, that's Wednesday, October 18th at the RBC Convention Center, as well as at the final home game of the season on Saturday, October 21st versus Edmonton. And let's hope it's a little bit warmer than colder for Justin making his way back in from California. We're asking you about the weirdest Things you've had to eat 
And uh, listener Angela says, my Vietnamese friends introduced me to durian fruits. Are you familiar with that, Loren? The stinky one, yes? Yeah, and it looks like when you see it on the shelf, it's big and it's spiky. Like, if you, it's hard to the touch. If you were to, like, throw it at somebody, you would really hurt them. And uh, But apparently it's really tasty, but it smells like death. So I've always been curious about it, but uh, I've seen people do it. Some of our colleagues went outside, and uh, when we were at Polo Park, they shot a video in the parking lot, and they cut this thing open. And even out in the fresh air, they all had to run away because it was so gross. So... I don't know. Maybe one day I'll it, do it on a But tastes good? Is it, I don't know how you could have a, a bad smell but an, end up tasting good. I know. It's the weirdest thing. So that's why I'm curious because I don't I, the, normally the smell and the taste combine for the flavor. Mm-hmm. But to have the smell be that awful, I, I don't know. But I haven't tried it. So, But 204-780-6868. The weird things you've eaten for a chance to win. We'll pick a winner at 9.15. And now Canada's Canada needs solutions to help bring grocery prices in check. That's according to the Competition Bureau of Canada. And as the watchdog concluded today, more competition is a key part of the answer. Yeah, so most Canadians buy groceries in stores that are owned by a handful of giants. So you have our three largest grocers, they're Loblaws, Sobeys, and Metro. They did $100 billion in sales last year with $3.6 billion in profits. And we know we, we often are at those big giants. And the answer of more competition might make sense in our mind, but how do we get there? So Michael von Massau is an associate professor at the University of Guelph. Michael is in the Food, Agriculture and Resource Economics Department and also a uh, former Manitoban. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Or always a Manitoban, I think. Always a Manitoban, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so Michael, let's talk about this idea of more competition. Is that really what's going on here, that we have the major giants that are controlling much of the market and therefore we are paying the price for it? Well, I think I think there's a couple of things to, to note. Uh, the first thing is that while they recommend more competition, they, there's nowhere in the report that it says that the grocery stores are screwing us, that they found evidence of, of un, unfair pricing or anything like that. They're saying competition generally is good, like we would learn in Economics 101. And, and for the most part, more competition is good. And so uh, that's, why, that, that's, why, that's why they're recommending it. What it would mean in terms of grocery prices in Canada, to me, is somewhat unclear. Um, I mean, big can be bad if they're behaving in un- uncompetitive uh, ways. Big can be good if it if it brings sort of some economies of scale, buying efficiencies and those mm-hmm. sorts of things. So I, I'm not convinced, frankly, that uh, that more competition will automatically bring lower prices. But I don't think it necessarily will be bad. We will see how it shakes out in the wash. Yeah, because with that buying power for the bigger companies let's say a smaller company decides they want to give it a go and they, you know a small independent company but they just don't have that buying power so they're they're sort of hand-strung by the fact that they just can't compete yeah yeah and and really uh, that's 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 the crux of the problem for smaller independents is is buying in in ways that allow them to uh, that allow them to compete on price to cover their costs and compete on price. And, and so it's, uh, you know, and, 
and we've heard calls for a grocery code of conduct and and you know some of the things that the large grocery stores do with their suppliers to encourage better deals and and make some money that way so if it would make it more competitive for the smaller independents. I'm just not sure that it will lower prices for us. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it, I'm not convinced it will have a whole lot of impact on our pri- the prices we pay in the grocery store. Because we don't just have the giants like the Loblaws, which is Superstore here in, in Manitoba, or the Walmarts or the Costcos. Like when, when they go, who controls the, like who's the wholesaler? Like, is that not the same, that the, the struggle for an independent would be that they're also going to the same big giants to get their food, so they still can't pass that down? Or they're still passing well, those costs I, I, down? So, so, so some, of the, some of the issues that, that we see uh, with the big people, the big, the, the, the big companies, the Loblaws, the Sobeys, they have their own distribution centers, and they are buying directly from the large companies. They're buying directly from the large produce companies, uh, in California in the winter and those sorts of things. So they, they buy for all their stores, bring it to central distribution and then, and then ship it out. So they've sort of captured, if you will, that distribution margin internally, whereas some of these smaller independents don't have the ability to, to aggregate that much. And in fact, some of them, some small independents actually buy from the large grocers through their distribution because that becomes the the most cost-effective way for them to get it. We also see here in Ontario, as an example, the Ontario Food Terminal, where there's a a, a, a large number of, uh, it's a distribution hub, uh, but it is not serving the large retailers because they do it themselves. So, So the challenge becomes finding a way to access buying power uh, while maintaining while maintaining competition at the consumer facing side, our guest is Michael von Masso, associate professor at the University of Guelph in food, agricultural, and resource economics. And this competition watchdog uh, update here is proposing some recommendations to improve competition and lower prices. One of the recommendations for uh, the government is to do something like limit real estate controls in the grocery industry that make it difficult or even impossible for new stores to open. So let's say the, the government does step in or governments step in to to help. But how long could it take before we would potentially see any benefit to us, the consumers? Well, any of these recommendations regarding more competition, regarding property limitations, even require even regarding uh, unit pricing that they put in the report are going to. This isn't something we're going to see in the next couple of months. These are long-term impacts, if they have any impact at all. And so, I think that there is, despite today's numbers, that things are looking still pretty, pretty high on the food inflation uh, side. I, I think there's still room for optimism, frankly, that we'll see food prices come down because of other reasons uh, and not because of competition in the grocery industry. So I think there's some room for optimism uh, and that if the government, if and when the government uh, implements some of these recommendations from the Competition Bureau, those impacts are much longer term. Before we let you go, Michael, do you see them coming back down to levels that that 
more Canadians would find, and I put this in quote, acceptable, uh, you know, because there's often that theory that once it goes up, it's never going back down to where it was. I, I, I have outright stopped buying cauliflower just because I'm so annoyed that it's 650 ahead. And so, you know, when I was looking at it being at least half that, you know, just a couple of years ago, are we talking about going back to normal or just sort of a bit of a loosening on those prices? Well, I think the first thing we need to need to, to achieve is a is a is it is it for it to stop going up, right? And 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 I think there's some room for optimism there. I think also in the short term, particularly, there's room for optimism on your six dollar and fifty cent cauliflower as we get into the Canadian production season. This this has been a, a tough season. We always pay more in the winter for produce anyway. Fuel costs are up. Canadian dollar was lower, although it's rebounded. Uh, and and they had some growing problems in in the U.S. this past winter, so those prices went up even more than than normal. So some of these prices are just going to come down naturally as we get into Canadian production. I think there's room for optimism that that overall the growth will uh, the growth will slow down. But as you said, prices come down more slowly than they go up, uh, and so I think while we can start to see some prices go down. Uh, overall, generally, I think the best we can hope for in the short run is that food inflation stops going up. Michael Von Masso, Associate Professor at the University of Guelph in Food, Agricultural and Resource Economics. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. It's McGarry and McNabb. Mackling is off this week. We want to talk about mushrooms in a moment and not the kind that you'd put on your pizza. Well, maybe you you might. I don't know. I wouldn't. But we are asking you about the weird things that you've eaten in your life. And Melissa in Beausajour, Loren, has a rather interesting suggestion. I'd be into this. Melissa says, people think it's weird that I eat ice cream and salt and vinegar chips together, but eating salty and sweet together heightens the flavor. So the chip tastes extra salty after you've had a taste of ice cream, and the ice cream tastes extra sweet after a chip. Do you ever dip the chips, Melissa, into the ice cream. A lot of people, uh, I've and I've always thought this was weird. I did finally try it, but for years people have been saying when they go to Wendy's, mm-hmm. they get fries and they get a frosty and they dip their fries yep. in the frosty, and it's actually now a part of their marketing. Like they've they've adopted it. And that would be a full like the sweet and salty thing. I think going on. Yeah, I didn't care for it. It wasn't my thing, but uh, I can see that. I mean, look at people who there's a lot of popcorn flavors are are sweet to get the caramel corn or whatever like that. Again, I'm not my thing, but that's super I, I, popular. I Yeah, the whole adding something else to popcorn besides butter and salt mystifies me. <laughs> like, it's not terrible or anything like that. And if you like it, like, have at it. But I don't want anything but the butter and salt. So adding the cheese dust or, like, a salt and vinegar flavor. Oh, it's so okay. You don't like the cheese. The, the, the extra, because it's just more salt. It's flavored salt. Yeah, no, I know. I, I mean, I hear it. Like, I... Like I understand it i just yeah. don't want it i don't get it i'm like you're making something that's already amazing not more amazing <laughs> i like the white cheddar uh, salt well i, I start <laughs> off i start off like i, I don't but I, you got to wait until at least half the bag is gone because you got to be able to shake it up so i eat the popcorn as it is for the first half and then uh-huh. when there's room to add the flavor salt then i'll put it in 
But I'm not going to add like a bag, a box of milk duds or something. I've heard people do that too, and that's odd to me. Just pour oh. it into the bag of popcorn. Sorry, I got distracted by a text from Debbie that maybe we'll share in our next segment that okay. made me gag. Okay. Something that they used to eat. <laughs> I was right. all excited about popcorn, and I was like, my, my saliva was practically dripping, and then I was stopped in my tracks by that text. So we'll maybe get to that next. We're going to pick a winning text, by the way, at 9.15, and uh, we have passes to give away for the Gimli Film Festival, where hopefully if you go, you will enjoy some popcorn. But right now we... You know, we we had that situation a few weeks ago on Osborne where there was that store that opened and then was shut down a couple of weeks later. Uh, Magic mushrooms is what they were selling. And the question now is, can magic mushrooms treat depression? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of people that are insisting, and we've we've spoken to people on this program about the medicinal value of magic mushroom, much the way that people were looking at the medicinal value of cannabis, not just that high. And so there is this idea that people think that magic mushrooms can work for some mental health things like depression or anxiety. And now we have a team of Toronto researchers that are actually studying what's known as microdosing, so those small doses of mushrooms, to see if they can back up the claims that it helps with actual science. Global's Alisa Julie reports. They're, uh, they're good therapeutic mushrooms. Psychedelics like psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, are increasingly being studied as a way to treat mental illness. A clinical trial in Canada is studying the impact of microdosing, taking a psychedelic at subhallucinogenic levels. Advocates like John Sayer say microdosing has helped alleviate his PTSD symptoms. I had a pacemaker installed about 17 years ago, and I started getting defibrillated while I was conscious. And then I got in a near-fatal accident five years ago. And uh, I'm getting through it because of microdosing. Research appears to show that psilocybin in higher doses opens new pathways in the brain, which can disrupt entrenched thoughts and help those suffering from PTSD or depression. But research on microdosing has only begun to emerge, meaning studies like this are crucial. We're going to use several different uh, measures of depression and we want to be able to compare the effect we find to those that other studies find. The psilocybin comes from a BC lab specializing in psychedelics. We are making our drug substance and our drug product out of a single strain that we've developed. And so we've chosen and bred our strain to give us the parameters that we we like. Participants receive two milligrams, about 10% of a so-called therapeutic dose. We were just basing it on what we had from people reporting uh, that they were doing. But the dose that people are using is very inaccurate. For this clinical study, Rotem and his team also want to look at the impact psilocybin has on things like sustained attention and creativity. What you need to do is withhold your response whenever you see the number three. But what we expect will happen is that when people microdose, their performance will degrade less. The team's hypothesis is that the low dose of psilocybin will provide a mental boost without being intoxicating. But to test that, they'll use the same sobriety tests police use in the field. 
Such studies are part of a promising new chapter in psychedelic research that could lead to exciting new treatments. This psychedelic renaissance is a really interesting moment. They allow us to think differently about our relationship to you know, how we measure these kinds of experiences, how we evaluate them. Rotem says the next step, depending on the results of this trial, is to replicate its findings. Alyssa Julie, Global News. I'm still trying to figure out all the things that uh, are coming out of legalizing cannabis, Loren, and the various ways that it helps people that I didn't know about before. And now mushrooms coming into the mix. Uh, it's a we, <laughs> strange times for me. Yeah, it's a lot to wrap your head around when you've grown up in an era where these things were things you didn't touch because, you know, they're illegal and they're taboo. And I guess I would just say, you know, I, I have to try to I'm glad they're studying this because I've heard a lot of people talk about this over the years, particularly in BC. Like you see shops that sell mushrooms there. And, and it's not that the police have turned a blind eye to it. They've just decided they have other things that they need to deal with. And so they're getting away with selling them there. And I suppose if you were somebody who struggled with depression or anxiety and that was working for you, then you're going to, you're going to do whatever it can to get rid of what's hurting you. Right. And for sure. So, I, I like I can't knock someone who says, you know what, this has changed my life and here I am because of it. So I, I am happy to hear that scientists are studying this because even now, the number of times I hear from people, the different cannabis things they're using to, you know, an oil for their back, not just the stuff that they're ingesting, but this back oil, back oil is making their life better. Yeah. So it's neat. Yeah. And I, I know a couple of people who are into the microdosing as well. And they say it, it, like you mentioned, it changed their life. So indeed, I think it's great that they're studying it. And uh, maybe this is the next thing that uh, becomes more mainstream. McGarry McNabb Mackling is off this week. We are giving away tickets for the Gimli Film Festival. We're asking you about the weirdest things you've ever eaten, inspired by the story that Global did yesterday on the fact that a company in the States has been given the green light to sell lab-grown chicken. And, Loren, there was a text message that kind of derailed you last uh, segment, one of our runners-up this morning. Because I immediately pictured it. Debbie says, good morning, Loren and Brett. My 90-year-old mom grew up on a farm. She told us nothing went to waste. They used to boil the combs from a chicken and eat them. Even texting this makes me nauseous. Okay, I'm that's, a- the, that's the rubbery part on the top of the chicken. <laughs> I just wanted, like, I, I, because I Googled comb, I was like, she doesn't mean the, the part that makes the chicken kind of cute. <laughs> I had to Google it, too. I yeah. had no idea. Yeah. I mean, I get it. Like, I grew up on a farm, too, and we used to get the quarter steer or half steer or full steer, and we'd have it in the freezer. And eventually, you get to the part of the year where all that's left is the tongue and the heart. And would you eat them? I think maybe one time I did. Uh, One time I remember heart stew for sure. Okay. And I can't recall having the tongue, but, like, you get all parts at some point. And, you know, depending on the year and if you like if you're if you're growing up in certain circumstances, like on on you're trying to save everything and save cash, you eat what's there. I just don't know about that comb. I didn't know that was a thing. That's weird. That's weird. But I guess you get creative (laughs) if you don't want to waste anything. Um, Ed, another runner up here. Imagine getting bitten by the very thing you are trying to bite. Ed says when I was in the Azores, did I say that right? Um, we ate an oyster-like thing that you had to stick a nail in its beak and, and pull it out of the rock that was retrieved by divers. Well, one time my friend's father got bitten by one when we were eating. So he's now, trying to eat this thing and then it bit him back. When it's trying to eat you back, you got to stop and think about some choices you're making. <laughs> like maybe can we just get a bag of chips instead? 
<laughs> hey, by the way, they now have KFC original recipe chicken uh, ruffles. I spotted those yesterday at the grocery store. Oh, you have to try those. Let me know. You're I, my guinea pig. I'm always disappointed with the ru- the ruffles, the new flavors of ruffles. Very mm. few uh, end up winning. Although they did do a uh, jalapeno cheddar one recently. It's like the double crunch. That That's actually pretty good. Um, I think we're almost out of time here. So we're just going to jump ahead, Loren, to Kristen, who is our winner due to a rather traumatic memory from her childhood. My strange food story stems from an extreme betrayal betrayal and could very well be a factor in why I'm so afraid of trying new things. When I was very small, my parents fed us a weird meat. Afterwards, they confessed it was horse meat. As a young girl who hoarded my little ponies and was right in the prime of the I want pony phase of childhood, my little heart was shattered by this ultimate crime I had unwittingly been a part of. Wonder if you were you ever able to play with those My Little Ponies again, Kristen. Oh, Kristen, I'm sorry. Congratulations, Kristen. You win the tickets for Gimli Film Festival. We have more passes to give away through the week on 680 CJOB.